Welcome to something to wrestle with. Something to wrestle with. Brutes Pritchard. Well, you know. That's not a rib. She pooted. What a rib. No, you have a big There's no box of gimmicks. Rumor and innuendo. I don't deal in rumor and innuendo. Was he there? I was there. I don't give a shit. <laughs> I ain't scared. I ain't scared to shit. I Fuck you, Bruce. I love you. God damn, kid. God damn it. What the hell show you got there? I need more. Ooh, yeah. What say you? Pronouns, pal. And now, something to wrestle with. Con Bruce Pritchard. The second most recognizable athlete in the entire world today. Conrad Colson. What happened when? Huh. What would Vince say about that? Well, hey, Vince. Tell the end. Charms look good tonight. Yeah. They're so big. Let's yeah. go. Welcome to WrestleMania. Girl title now. Welcome to something to wrestle something with. To wrestle something to wrestle with. Something to wrestle with. Something to wrestle with. Bruce Pritchard. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Something to Wrestle with. Bruce Pritchard and uh, Bruce. You're barely with us today. Welcome back to the show, my friend. Well, thank you. It's good to be back. I apologize if I sound a little bit different. I've kind of got a few dental issues here, but, uh, you know, we're going to get through it and it's all good. They pulled six of my teeth and six of them. So you've got, uh, the top of your mouth is all stitches and you've recently had some complications and, um, mouthful of blood and. Now a top lip swollen, full of blood and it's a mess over there in uh, Friendswood, Texas. And as a result, we uh, had to play a bit of a best of last week, but we wanted to uh, drop a little surprise on you this week. What we planned to do last week, we're going to deliver to you this week. You're committed to uh, cranking out new content every single week, unless Bruce is uh, in the dentist chair or Saudi Arabia. (laughs) And then, uh, well, we have to call an audible, but let's get to it, man. King of the ring, 1994, we just passed the 25 year anniversary of this show. Went down in Baltimore and it drew a sellout 6,500 fans. $78,000 was the live gate. And it's going to do a 1.1 buy rate for a $2.6 million gross. And this is back in the day before there was a pay-per-view every single month. So this is actually the first pay-per-view since WrestleMania 10, and the second King of the Ring pay-per-view. Do you miss the old days of pay-per-views being a, a special occurrence, or do you enjoy the fast pace that we're on now, where it feels like as soon as one's over, it's time to start promoting another because it's three or four weeks away? Oh my gosh, man! I I do miss the time in between. I miss being able to settle back, absorb what you just did, and build to something new, and have the time to actually build to it and have some fun building to it and get some good television out of it along the way, build the one big match versus the way that the business has evolved over the years is that you are constantly creating 
big matches all the time to get to bigger matches on the pay-per-views. So it's, 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 uh, that leapfrog system. The, the leap has gotten a whole hell of a lot shorter than it ever used to be. And this was at a time that we had, you know, it was the big five and this was the fifth of the big five with mania, SummerSlam, survivor series and rumble. And then we had a king of the ring and woo. Yeah. We thought this was like, how are we going to do five of these a year? Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about something else that you've started to sort of transition to in the company. You run some commercials in here, pushing the new generation. And this has been talked about a lot, but you know, you're comparing sort of the, the old regime, the Hulk Hogan era with being slow, moving, prodding, old, elderly, blah, blah, blah. Um, but you're still going to manage to have some of that on your own too, but it does feel a little weird. It doesn't feel like something Vince would normally do. It, it feels like Vince quote, wouldn't sell it, but now that Hogan is gone and it's become apparent, Hey, he's going to debut with WCW next month, uh, in a pay-per-view bash at the beach with Ric Flair. Of course, that's going to really turn things around for WCW and They'll continue that momentum with nitro and we know what's coming with the NWO, but we're already seeing Hulk Hogan, you know, there's shots across the bow here. And, and so we're talking about new generation, but we're also promoting macho man. And we're talking about how this isn't the old slow plotting guys you've seen before, but, oh, check out Mabel. What did you think of the, the positioning of the new generation and specifically shitting on Hulk Hogan? Well, you know, I don't think it was so much shitting on Hulk Hogan as it was trying to distance ourselves from the past and trying to distance ourselves from what the company had been associated with for many years. And when you still have that lingering over your head and you're trying to promote Bret Hart, people are going to constantly compare Bret to Hulk, no matter what you do. So you have to do whatever it is you can on your side to to change that, change that narrative, however the hell you want to do it. And I'll never forget sitting in a room with some marketing experts. And, and one of the things is, you know, you've heard me talk about it before when we made the move to focus on Brett, we would often ask ourselves, what would we do in this situation? If it were Hulk, uh, whether it was marketing or promotion or, or a match or whatever it is, you know, you'd say, okay, well, if it was Hulk, what would you do? And you try and apply that logic. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it didn't because Brett was different. Brett was new in that role. And we're sitting around all these marketing geniuses and shit. I even want to say that we had an outside company at the time that had come in to advise us and, and try and help us out with some of these different ideas that we had. And the one that stuck was, you know, when a, a brand new cereal or, or, or an old cereal or, or Coke or Pepsi or whatever, they want to reinvent themselves. It's, you know, the new and improved, the new Coke, the new, you know, the new and improved corn crisps or whatever the fuck it is. And, it was new and improved. It's new. So people, no matter all you do is you put that fresh paint of coat on it. And, uh, 
by God, you know, you've got, you've got something new. So Brett was that new fresh paint of coat. So, um, it was new and improved. And we were looking at guys like the one, two, three kid razor and, and diesel and Sean and just a younger batch younger in comparison to what the previous regime had been. Uh, so let's put them up in the forefront. And uh, it, as we get into this card, you'll see how well that worked out. Yeah. So uh, that's what I want to <laughs> talk about. Is, especially for the goddamn closer. Well, yeah. So let's talk about it. I mean, this is the kind of point I was driving to. It's, it's more, it's not necessarily, it doesn't feel like, um, it feels like a marketing decision, but not necessarily one that Vince is totally on board with. Maybe he is taking the advice of, Hey, you got to put new and improved on it. And that'll maybe get some renewed interest. Okay. I get that, but he still sort of goes with what he knows. Your main event is Roddy Piper. Who's 40 years old and Jerry Lawler, who's 44 years old. And I think this is the first time in WWF history that two guys who are 40 plus are headlining a pay-per-view. So at the same time, we're pushing throughout the show. This is the new generation. We literally have the oldest main event in company history at that point. Well, in our viewpoint, the King of the ring was the main event. And that's the way that we were trying to position it. Your feature match. Yes. Without a doubt. Um, one of the main attractions was the old timers in Roddy and Jerry. And you look at it now, now, hell they're kids, um, in comparison and both of them could still go. But when you are looking at, and I think that from the overall viewpoint, looking at it going new and improved, well, damn, man, it's bringing me back Roddy Piper and, and Jerry Lawler is a hundred years old. And Jerry Lawler wasn't a hundred years old. Jerry was still new to our audience right? at that time. So at least that was new, but hot rod was a blast from the past. So that was kind of mixing the new with the old and trying to help elevate the new generation, if you will. Well, everybody knows what I'm about to do. AJ styles is 42. Uh, John Cena is 42. So while we're talking about these guys as if, oh, they're so past their prime. Piper here is 40 and, uh, Lawler is 44. So it's not that old of a main event, but it is an interesting marketing decision to sort of talk about old wrestling and poke fun at the competition. But at the same time, say we've got the new guys and then, oh, yeah. here's your main event. That's uh, a couple of old dudes. Macho man's on this show and we're going to talk about him, unfortunately for, uh, drawing the short straw and having to carry art Donovan this entire show, but how did he feel about the promotion of the, the new generation? You're specifically taking shots at Hulk Hogan, which depending on the day of the week, he was probably four. So he's probably four in this era, but he's got to wonder, Hey, wait a minute. I don't want to be done in the ring. What's that mean for me? Right? Yeah. But this was also during the time that Randy was indicating to us that he wanted to be done in the ring. Randy didn't want to take bumps anymore. Randy was looking at this period in his life to make the move into the office. He wanted to work behind the scenes. And I think that pride and everything else that Randy never wanted to get out of the ring, but at the same time, the realistic, the business side of Randy was saying, yeah, you don't let me get out of the ring. Uh, -huh. well, that's going to be hard today, uh, to get out of the ring and 
get behind, do the commentary, do the color commentary, but also help us out with creative as well. And that was a decision on Randy Savage's side. And Randy liked pushing the new young talent. One of Randy's charges per Randy himself was, you know, I'll show you how to get these new guys over. I'll show you, I'll get them over because it's going to take an old timer like me to do it. So he had that attitude and, you know, contrary to so many of the things that, that I've heard and other people have reported over the years, Randy wasn't that bitter guy. I don't want to, I don't want to get out of the ring right now at the time. Randy was the guy that was pushing the young kids. Randy was the guy pushing, man, let, let me, let me get in there and help out. Let me go on to the next stage of my life in this career. Cause I don't want to be battered down and beaten up when I'm 50, 60 years old. Let's uh, talk about where we are in the business of the world wrestling federation. Your average attendance in June of 93, 2,610 fans. A year later, you're up 11%, 2,940 fans. Your gate is also up about 10% going from 33,000 and change to 37,000 and change. And you're actually selling out some house shows here. Uh, not a ton, but it's still happening. Ratings are down just a little bit, but maybe not enough to really mention. Uh, but something that is worth mentioning, uh, Meltzer is going to report that the Steiner brothers, no show opening weekend because they're trying to quit. Uh, apparently they tried to give notice earlier in the week. They've been unhappy with their pay for months. They're used to a guarantee from WCW and they were earning around $300,000 with WCW. And they had a backup plan to go work in Japan where they thought they could make about 12 grand a week. And Meltzer's going to freestyle in his report that they're probably going to have to sit out the remainder of their contract, which wouldn't expire until mid December, at least as far as North America is concerned, but they could still work these new Japan shows. Meltzer would say, really the Steiner's Titan relationship was doomed when they signed the big money, new Japan contract, because it set a bad precedent in that a Titan push commodity would have a higher money priority somewhere else. Steiners before that were scheduled to win the tag belts at WrestleMania, but instead weren't even put on that card. When they are legally allowed, one would expect they'll return to WCW and in 1995, both work in WCW and new Japan. Although the current economic climate in WCW is such that there is a good chance they won't be able to get a deal like they originally had with WCW, which could stand in the way of uh, being a given that they'll return while we have no confirmation of this when last week's raw aired and Vince McMahon did commentary about the brothers not getting along and the match looked like stage one of a Scott heel turn several who knew remarked that they felt they'd quit if the apparent direction continued because that was a big problem years ago under Bill Watts who wanted to break them up and turn Scott heel and that resulted in them quitting so Talk to us a little bit about why the Steiners run came to an end here. You know, Meltzer's sort of freestyling that maybe creatively you guys were bored with him as a tag. Maybe it was time to split and they weren't going to be happy with that. Was it all money? And what do you take of, uh, or what do you make of Dave's assertion that, Hey, they're bigger money priorities, new Japan. And as a result, WWE won't push them. And they changed the creative for no tag titles, not even a match. In fact, at WrestleMania. I I think a lot of it was money. I think a lot of it was having to do with 
their own self-worth and what they thought they were worth. And coming in, obviously, we would have loved to have had them make a whole hell of a lot more money than they were making at the time. Business was down and business wasn't in a position where they were able to make the money that they thought that they should have been earning. Vince did uh, cut them a deal and Vince did allow them to have the Japanese agreement separate from us and allowed them to do some of those dates. But it also does the, the issue of creative and it happened in WCW too, but the reason being, and I do think that once they finally pulled the trigger that they, they found that that may have been the answer for quite some time was turning Scott heel and using Scott splitting the brothers up because they did have a very natural competitive chemistry anyway, both of those guys and Scott was a natural heel. So whenever that was brought up, the brothers felt uh, loyalty to one another, which is great. And they weren't comfortable with making that switch at the time. They wanted to continue to be the brother tag team and be that dominant tag team when the feeling was there was more money, money creatively on the other side, splitting them up and making them singles and, and letting them each go their separate way. So it was a combination of all the above. It was the perfect storm that I think they felt, well, hell, I can just sit at home. I can go do my Japanese deal and maybe I won't make as much money, but I also won't be working and beating up my body as much anymore either. And then they wouldn't have to do what they, you know, wanted to do. Talk to me a little bit about the decision or Vince's rationale on letting, letting him go to work Japan, letting the Steiners work Japan, because we're going to see, uh, what, two years later. Yeah. Two years later, Scott Hall is going to ask to do the same thing and get turned down. What lesson is there a lesson that Vince learned from the Steiner agreement that he was like, I'm fucking never doing this again. And that's why I turned it down for Scott Hall. No, it's two different things. See, we had built Scott Hall and we had built the Razor Ramon character under our umbrella and had built that character. And, and that was our IP. The Steiners had built their IP and they had had their characters. That's who they were. They were there before they came to us and they had had their deal before they came to us. Scott was trying to reap the rewards off of the IP and everything, the investment that we had put into Scott Hall. So that's the difference. Uh, the investment was ours. The investment in the Steiners in the beginning with New Japan, that was theirs. So Vince, again, he, he made an agreement. And I don't know that he would make that same agreement you know, again after that. He did learn a lesson. But it was also a different, it was a different structure if you will. Let's, uh, let's keep it moving here because uh, we've done a, a whole show on the Steiners. If you'd like to hear more about that, you can check it out. Something to wrestle.com. It's in the archives. Uh, Meltzer's going to report that there's some bad news for Titan sports and that the criminal indictments against the company have been rewritten with two additional charges being added, bring the total to five counts, three against Vince and two against Titan. Uh, both new counts are similar, charging both McMahon and the company with possession and intent to distribute anabolic steroids on April 3rd, I'm sorry, April 13th, 1989. And in the count against McMahon, the indictment will claim he knowingly and intentionally possessed, uh, with intent to distribute to a WWF performer known to the grand jury, a substance containing anabolic steroids 
for use in humans other than for the treatment of disease. Uh, so, you know, this we're knee deep in the middle of this mess, uh, with Zahorian and all the fallout and the real push here is what the government is going after. The additional two indictments increase the maximum penalty against McMahon upon conviction from eight years to 11 years in federal prison in the trial currently scheduled for July the 5th at the Nassau County Courthouse in Uniondale, New York. The amount of potential fines against Titan Sports and McMahon with the added indictments are $2 million. And the most damaging potential penalty, the government's attempt to seize Titan Towers, the WWF's $9.5 million office complex in Stanford, was dropped a few weeks ago, as was widely reported. Titans lawyers have a hearing on April 29th before Judge Jacob Mishler in an attempt to get the case dismissed before a trial. So I guess it's good news that, you know, hey, they're not coming after the building anymore, but they're still piling on these counts. This has got to be the most stressful time in Vince McMahon's entire career, is it not? Without a doubt, because at this point, the government was just grasping at straws. They realized that they didn't have a case. They realized that everything that they were doing was just a witch hunt. They weren't getting any evidence. They weren't getting anything substantial. Got a lot of hearsay, rumor, and innuendo and bullshit, but nothing that actually added up to anything. There there was no illegalities. There was... It was just something that they kept trying to trump up more and more charges. So if you have one that may seemingly look like, okay, there might be a little smoke over here. Well, let's file another one very similar to that. Now there's going to be two. Same charge, same shit, same everything, but different name. And let's try that because then it'll add up. It'll make it look worse. And that is what the the federal government just continued to do. They just kept trying to intimidate. They kept trying to add things that were just erroneous and completely false to try and make their case look stronger and look bigger in the public eye. And it was bullshit. And it quickly got thrown out and it was laughed at, which is another reason that so much of this is everything got closer and closer to the actual trial taking place that the government was just losing face with the judge, with court and everybody else, because they're going, what do you really have? Do you have anything? And they were quickly finding out that they had a house of cards. Let's, uh, let's keep it moving here because this is obviously, you know, the basis of the entire, I mean, this is really what in this era, the newsletter spent most of their time talking about as well. They should, but we've done a, a whole episode on the steroid trial, which is available in the archives. You can check it out now, uh, something to wrestle.com. But I do want to mention that, you know, once they got digging here, it becomes, as you said, a house of cards and they're just grabbing it, whatever, including a report on April 22nd, in the New York, New York daily news saying that Vince McMahon ordered Howard Finkel in February of 90 to take an HIV blood test on behalf of Terry Bollea. So fraudulently, because it's required by the state licensing authority. And this makes all the New York radio and TV media throughout the market that weekend. And they start to do stories on a current affair and everything else. 
I mean, don't get me wrong. I understand, you know, that at this point, we're just trying to dig up anything we can, but fresh off of, and, and maybe some folks are, are too far removed from that era or too young to remember it. But when magic Johnson got HIV, I mean, it created a whole new awareness, um, in America, at least with a different section of America and the idea that now, you know, there's a report that someone had to take an HIV test for Hulk Hogan. My goodness. People are going to jump to some crazy conclusions on that. Are they not? Well, okay. A report, a report from whom, right. Right. A rumor, a rumor, a bunch of bullshit. And, um, internally never heard that and heard it externally, which is laughable because if anyone that ever has known Howard Finkel, Howard Finkel, uh, I believe they called him a, a, a loyal lieutenant. Yes. Howard would do anything, but the last thing that Howard would do, uh, <laughs> would be lie. And the last thing that Howard would do would put himself in a position where he would have to testify or where he would have to do something. He couldn't do it. Howard would break. He couldn't do it. Right. Um, and I don't think that Vince would ever put him in that kind of a position to do something like that. So it was rumor. It was nasty. It was, it was mean spirited, but it was another tactic to get people to say, Hey, look at these dirty bastards. Look at this shit they're doing. We have no proof of this, but I'll bet you that they had Howard Finkel do it because Howard doesn't do drugs. Howard doesn't do anything. He's a loyal soldier. He'll do whatever Vince McMahon tells him to. And that evil bastard probably told him to do it. That's just bullshit. Well, here's the and, thing. Here's the result of the report, though. A current affair starts to freestyle. Hulk Hogan has AIDS, which is just insane uh, but but they turn this one little report into a six minute story and they even go interview david schultz and they're asking him hey did you because they're trying to freestyle well, how did he get aids so there's an, a real aids hysteria uh after after magic oh, johnson bad. where yeah. people who weren't talking about it it wasn't on anybody's radar now with magic johnson more people know about it than ever before and it's just it's a it's a fear oh you can't drink after someone and oh wash your hand it was a weird hysteria in a in America where people just didn't really understand it. And so they're freestyling a current affair here. And they're saying, oh, did he, did he share steroid needles with anyone? And it's just unbelievable to me that they jumped to the conclusion. Oh, well that must mean Hogan has AIDS and they didn't want anybody to know. Right. And you know, there was that hysteria. I remember even in the gyms during that time, every, every, uh, machine had a spritz bottle of disinfectant that would guard against, uh, any disease born illness and shit. And after every time you worked out on a machine, you had to use their wipes and spray it down and clean everything off. Cause if you got someone else's sweat on you, you would get AIDS. Uh, it was, it was hysteria. It was blown out of proportion. We didn't know a lot about it and it was scary. Because you did know we, we weren't nearly as educated on the disease as we had become later on. And I think that people would play on that hysteria to just instill fear wherever the hell they could. And if you could say, oh, wow, look at Hulk Hogan. Well, 
he's doing something there wrong. And if Magic Johnson, right, you know, the NBA sweetheart, has got HIV, then oh yeah, Hulk Hogan's got to have it. And that and that was actually the rationale. Unbelievable, I, it was ludicrous. It, well, as if this weren't enough. In the middle of all the steroid nonsense that Vince is trying to battle through and business being down and guys not being happy with their payoffs and saying they're going to sit at home. This is also the era where the Chuck Austin thing is going to trial. Now we've talked about this in our rockers episode, but we should briefly mention that Chuck Austin is an enhancement talent is going to suffer a broken neck at a December, 1990 television taping against the rockers. The trial began on April 19th and the injury comes when Marty Jannetty does a move where he puts his leg over Austin's neck and jumps down and uh, Austin lands on his head instead of his face. And that paralyzes him from the neck down and Austin files suit in 1991, suing Marty Jannetty, Shawn Michaels and Titan. Um, we've talked about this before, but one of the expert witnesses brought in by Titan is Dean Malenko. The other's killer Kowalski. Whereas if you're looking for somebody to saddle up against Vince McMahon, Chuck Austin brings in Bruno San Martino. Golly, what a, what a tangled mess where you've got your top draw now testifying against you. And, and that was, uh, I guess, two generations ago, but one generation ago, it's all in the paper that you helped cover up the fact that he has AIDS and you're on, you know, trial for your life for 20 years and your business is down. Uh, and your top draw is now going to show up for the competition next month in the biggest super pay-per-view that you had a chance to book, but didn't fuck. You kind of feel bad for Vince in this era. It's like, how much more can he take Uh, a decision? Of course, um, comes down in this Chuck Austin case. He's awarded $26.7 million by a jury on April 29th. Uh, originally they were only asking for 3.8 million and then eventually asked for 7 million, but they decide to just stack it up. The jury awards 4.2 million for medical bills and rehab 16 million for pain and suffering. His wife is going to get 5.5 million for her suffering. And his two sons are going to get half a million apiece because, uh, well, their father has been limited in what he can do for them now. So unbelievable that all of this is happening at the same time. Is it not? Yeah, and it really is, but it also goes to the Testament. Yeah. Everybody likes to say bad shit about Vince McMahon and I'm often painted as the Vince McMahon apologist. But when you look at the facts and you get down to the nitty gritty, I, I like to share the story that Jerry McDivitt, shared with us. Jerry McDivitt was Vince's attorney throughout all of this still is. And McDivitt tells a story of like during this very time period where everything was coming down and it seemed every day we were hit with what's next, you know, another bombshell, another bombshell. Well, this one's coming down the pike. These guys are suing you for this. These guys are going to sue you for that. This one's doing this. And, McDivitt and Vince had been at the office all day long and it was a late night and they're coming out of Vince's office and, uh, Nick, the janitor, uh, was in the hallway and 
all Vince wanted to do was get the hell out of the office. It was like he and McDivitt were done. They wanted to get out. And when Vince saw Nick there, Vince sat there and talked to Nick for 20 minutes about his wife, who was going through some hard times at home. And there was nothing more important to Vince at that point than Nick and his family. All the shit that was raining down on him. And Vince just sat there and put his briefcase down and sat down and bullshitted with Nick the janitor. Who had been with the company a few years. Great guy. And... That's, you know, that's the shit that his world's to some people is collapsing all around him and he's holding it all up and still just worried about everybody else. And that, that's the shit you don't hear about. That's the shit that people go, ah, yeah, okay. Wow. He did that. No, that's the kind of shit he does, you know, every day and, and does it but you just don't hear about. And that's what pains me when you look at all this and they kept heaping all this, but Nick, the janitor would never know that. All he knew was Vince McMahon at 11 30, 12 o'clock at night while he's in cleaning the office, sat down and talked with him and made him feel better for that day. So, Yes, there was just shit after shit after shit every day that came on us. And I, I would say it probably wore on us more. I know it, I know it wore on Vince, but he was never going to let it show. And he would always be the one to reassure us, just put your head down, let's get through it. We know what the facts are. If we stay with the facts, we stay with what's happening, we take care of our business Everything else is going to take care of itself. So let's muster through and do what we have to do. If we have to pay our dues, we pay our dues and we move the fuck on. That's what we did. I guess we should mention, you know, these lawsuits in this era keep coming because I think 94 is the year where, uh, Ventura won his settlement as well. Did he not? It was around that time. Yeah. Jesse, Jesse won, uh, a lawsuit on the videotapes, like eight, like 810 grand, right? Something like that. Yeah. It was a hefty amount. It's just amazing to me that, you know, you got the Chuck Austin thing and the Ventura thing, you know, and the steroid thing all at the same time. I mean, really the same timeline. And, and this Chuck Austin thing sort of opens the floodgates because uh, another enhancement talent, uh, in the Tampa area, James Goseski is going to sue Titan sports and Tatanka over neck and back and other injuries that he says happened on a March 9th, 1992 television taping saying that Tatanka didn't follow the script and injured him. And then after he alerted him that he was injured, Tatanka continued to pound on him. Golly, what a precedent that we set here. Were you nervous when this Chuck Austin thing came down that man, it's like the old telephone, telegram, tele wrestlers that this is going to be a thing now where everybody's going to sue because they were hurt. Well, obviously the Chuck Austin deal was an extremely serious 
accident. And that was something that paralyzed him. And he was in a really, really bad way that, you know, it's an unfortunate accident. I don't know how else to say it. You don't want that to happen to anybody. You don't want that to happen to your worst enemy, but it does shed light on, okay, what do we do to help prevent these kind of accidents? Is there better training on the other side? Is there better training on our side? Is there, uh, you know, some better way to screen who we're going to use for our events? And for years, the business had been conducted in a certain way that you use, hey, this is a good guy. He's a good worker. He can work with anybody. Can, can you do this? Yeah, kid, I can do it. Okay, great. We'll go do it. And they didn't know. So the, the screening process needed to be improved, and that's what it forced us to do. But I think it did for some people that, you know, may have just uh, <laughs> made a wrong turn and got an injury versus a serious accident or something to try and milk it for more than it was worth. And, and I don't, I'm not familiar with the other case with Tadak at all, but the Chuck Austin one was one that just made us sit up and take notice and say, what do we need to do to make this a safer work environment for everybody involved? Uh, Kurt Henning is, is not with the company here. He's going to leave in the spring of 94. He's going to be gone for a little over a year. He's going to come back in late 95 and do some commentary. And he's doing an interview somewhere in this era where he's saying that he's not coming back because he has a set price to return and McMahon didn't meet his price. Technically he's under contract through mid November. Uh, but Meltzer is going to say that he knows for sure. Ric Flair wishes that he could join him in WCW, but at least that won't be possible to November. But we know, uh, Kurt's actually going to pop back up a year later in the WWF at this point, he's probably got his Lloyd's of London settlement. He doesn't need the money. Is he just enjoying some home parent time, some family time, or was there a more frequent dialogue to get him back in the ring? No, Kurt had a great deal. Kurt had his Lloyd's of London deal and Kurt didn't need to wrestle. So why would he go and jeopardize that anymore when he was getting a good steady income from insurance that he paid for and in order for him to try to make a return, he would have had to forego whatever that settlement was with Lloyd's of London. And Kurt wasn't interested in doing that for a few reasons, uh, monetary, but also risk of injury. He didn't, if he was going to go back in and risk his body again and take another injury, then he's now lost the money that he would have gotten from his insurance. And he would have lost the money from potential work as well. I can't say I really blamed him. Um, would have liked to have had him back. I think that he could have come back physically. But from his a performer point of view and from his standpoint, um, man, that Lloyd's of London deal, that's what it was for. And he used it. You know, the one guy you mentioned, Ric Flair, Shit, Flair, if there was anybody that could have used it many years ago, <laughs> it was Ric Flair. And he never did because Rick just had that that ping that he, he had to perform. Right. Rick just couldn't help 
not performing. He'd make less money performing than he probably would have made collecting his Lloyds of London. Yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting because this is a guy who I mean, you talk about Kurt, his career, I mean, he's still in the prime physically of his career. He had a lot left in the tank and, and we're going to see him wrestle a little later, but by then it's not the same Kurt, right? No, not really. And I think it wasn't the same Kurt because of a little trepidation. I don't think Kurt wanted to suffer the, the same injury he had before he was in an awful lot of pain and frankly, he didn't have to work the way that he used to work. Sure. He was still as good as pretty much the best out there at, at half speed. I, I throw Kurt Hennig in the same category as I do Shawn Michaels. You give me half Shawn Michaels and he's still better than, you know, guys at full speed. Um, but Kurt had that pride too, but at least Kurt was smart enough to go, okay, I can dial it back. I can dial it back and I can get through it and I can still be Kurt because he still had the wit, right. he still had knowledge and he still had the psychology, which that's the one thing a lot of guys are missing. We should mention he was a special guest referee at WrestleMania 10, which was the most recent pay-per-view that was during the Yoko Lex Luger world title match. Uh, but here it looks like we're going to take a little break in early May. You guys do a tour of Japan. We've talked about this before, but I'm, I'm still fascinated by this Japan tour and how it came together. It goes down on May 7th in the uh, Yokohama arena. You guys draw 8,056 fans, but it's a capacity of 17,000. So, you know, there's less than, than halfway full. And this arena supposedly has never drawn less than 8,000. So. You beat that mark, 8,056. The next day you're in Nagoya, probably said that wrong on May 8th. And you announce 6,735 fans, but local folks say probably closer to 2,500. The next day you're at the Osaka castle hall. Uh, you've got a 15,000 capacity. You're going to draw 7,000. And the final night of the tour is on May 11th. It's a 10,000 seat arena. 2300 fans what do you think was a miss on this tour of japan here because you're running 50 percent or less in most of these arenas did you just not was your television there not strong did you not use enough local stars did you have the wrong local promoter why was the japan tour here just a little off well because we did it with a japanese promotion there and this was during the time of yeah, and I'm sure Dave Meltzer and all his cohorts and buddies will dispute this because they're the experts because they know everything about Japan. Uh, but it was sponsored shows, and the way that the Japanese ticket structure was was that sponsors basically bought the shows, and then you would get your tickets from sponsors. A lot of them were either free tickets or you would go in at discounted tickets, and they sold the tickets. The promotion itself was paid for the events. The promotion itself was not the promoter. Okay. Uh, in this case, we were basically a booking agency that they paid for us to come over and put on shows for them. Right. Some of their stars and what have you. So what we did uh, and what we were paid is not reminiscent of what they drew and what they were able to bring people in to see our event. And it just wasn't, 
it wasn't a good synergy. It didn't work out well. I don't know if there wasn't enough um, Japanese talent on the card of recognizable. Our TV there at the time was Star TV. I believe it was Star Japan. And it was, we, we went on, I think it was with Tenru's group and, and another group in the optical world folks at that time that they wanted to get into the wrestling business, just like a lot of the sponsors and different people in the old way of doing business with new Japan and all Japan had done for years. So it's in many ways, you know, a lot of times you, you hear about these grand houses in Japan. Well, when you're talking about some of the buildings, Oh, they sold out. Those are 1200 seat arenas. These are, small arenas. These were big arenas we were running and they felt they could draw them with the WWF, just the name alone. And there wasn't a lot of promotion any more so than what was done for the smaller Corican halls and things of that nature. So it was a different way of doing it. Um, perception wise. I don't know that, uh, whatever the one where they say we only drew, well, they're, they say 7,000, but they really only drew 200, shit like that. Uh, I believe that's probably highly exaggerated in the opposite form to fit their narrative. But uh, they weren't, it wasn't stellar business that made us say, well, shit, let's go back there and get our ego boost. Right. And, and I think, you know, what you said about, you know, they were, you know, they had a marketing strategy for a, a 1,200-seat arena, and they just sort of did what they always did. And as a result, you know, you, you drew more than that, but you didn't draw the full house. I mean, that, that makes sense. And one of the things that I've always enjoyed is the business strategy behind marketing these live shows. And uh, I know we talked a lot about that in our Royal rumble 97 episode, the partnership that you guys had to give away tickets or, or move the lower price tickets. Um, but one of the things that I found in the research here, and this is according to the observer, Domino's pizza has bought a major corporate sponsorship rumored to be a quarter million dollars for SummerSlam Domino's delivers WWF SummerSlam will be the advertising campaign, which will include all advertising for the show. The WWF will heavily plug Domino's throughout television in July and August on TV and on the pay-per-view show, constantly plugging that you should order pizza. Now Domino's will have a SummerSlam box top on all pizzas delivered in July and August. And since the box tops are already produced, the main event advertised for the show will be undertaker versus undertaker. So forget the spoiler piece of that. Who put a deal like this together with dominoes? Because this is all, this is fascinating to me. Fucking huge. This was going to be our, our first, um, I think, uh, I don't even think we had had us major sponsorship for WrestleMania yet at this point. And Jim Rothschild in the New York sales office, who was the vice president of sales in New York, great guy. He had, he had put this deal together and it was a national sponsorship where dominoes would be tagged on everything. And I want to say that from the time that we started the promotion until SummerSlam was like something like, 60 million impressions, which was unheard of because we put it everywhere. Right. I mean, we had it, 
we had it everywhere. So every time that Domino's logo came up, that's an impression. And we did it everywhere. And it was amazing. The, the best part of it for me was working with Leslie Nielsen and doing all of those. We're going to find the real undertaker and go back and, and different things. But I learned so much about television and film and just simple storytelling from Leslie Nielsen during the, the several weeks of working with him, uh, class act class guy, but he was, he was the spokesman for it as well on our side. So we'd gone out and we'd, we'd got Leslie Nielsen to be the face of it. Uh, Domino's paid us. We paid Leslie Nielsen and the promotion did gangbusters for us just surely out of recognition because every time that you got a Domino's pizza, you got that flyer right on top of your pizza for SummerSlam. And it started early, uh, man. It started early before the damn uh, match was even announced, I believe. And it was a hell of a promotion, but the most impressive thing of all was the way that we integrated dominoes into every single thing we did we had them delivered at the at the announce desk we just we we did we did it everywhere we went above and beyond to prove to potential sponsors here's what our vehicle can deliver this is what we can do for you now you're going to pay for this but we're going to over deliver and you're going to get this I mean, it's, uh, it's a landmark deal for WWE. So finally some good news. And we should mention that not too terribly long before King of the ring, Brian Lee debuts on TV as the evil undertaker with the million dollar man. Of course, that's going to set up the eventual main event at SummerSlam 94. We've talked about that a little bit in the archives as well, but something else we've talked about a lot, but Lord, it's been a while. Meltzer would report in early June, Jerry Jarrett has moved back from Stamford, Connecticut to his home in Henderson, Tennessee quote, while he hasn't officially completely severed ties with the WWF, he is no longer part of the creative team. There are reports. Jarrett is going to start a company that would lease jobbers to the major companies. So the jobbers would work for him and would save the company some liability when it comes to the legal hornet's nest that will be wide open. If the Chuck Austin decision isn't reversed. Interesting idea, I suppose. Any comments of the report of, uh, him moving home finally? Well, Jerry was unhappy in Connecticut. Connecticut was unhappy in Jerry. And I believe that Jerry was very lonely in Connecticut, uh, without his wife wanted to, he wasn't getting home nearly enough and, and it just wasn't for him. He didn't fit in. He did not. Uh, as I've said before, I'm trying to be nice. Uh, I didn't feel that Jerry was that creative in, in that, uh, environment and was not, it was not a good fit in any way, shape or form. And the fact that Jerry Jarrett was never brought in to run the company events ended up going to jail. That was never, ever the truth. That was never the intention Jerry Jarrett was brought in to consult and to offer whatever advice that he could offer Vince on 
Sunday phone calls. We brought him in to try him out in the creative process and quickly realized that that was not a good fit. And Jerry went home. That that's the extent. I mean, when you when you when you boil it all down to Jerry Jarrett's involvement in his WWE career, that's it. That's 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 it. There, the end. <laughs> um, uh, not much more than that. Well, something I do want to talk about because it just gets one line in the Observer, but he's somebody you were close with and, and very familiar with. We've heard the name a ton. Meltzer would report Basil DeVito resigned as company vice president. No details have been given. What can you tell us about the departure of Basil DeVito? Somebody who had been a staple with the company for a long time. Basil was a, uh, I'm not going to call Basil a promoter. Uh, Bob Collins was a promoter. Basil was, um, a marketing and promotions kind of guru and basil i believe had come from the nba uh very enthusiastic had a lot of great ideas a lot of energy and basil took us through a lot of those early growing times through wrestlemania one and two and three things of that nature four basil was instrumental in in getting the deal with trump plaza uh in wrestlemania four and five and a very integral part of the company that headed up the marketing and promotions team on that side of the business. And I think that the, the wear and the fatigue of everything going on from the lawsuits, the, the federal government investigation and, and everything going out going on. I think that the pressure kind of got to Basil at the time and there was a fear of if the company went down, that that would have a adverse mark on Basil's resume. resume. Yeah. So he made the choice. His, uh, I believe, his father-in-law had a, a oil company that delivered, you know, oil in the winter for the heaters up in the Northeast, and uh, Basil took this opportunity to go and help out his father-in-law during that time and, and walk away from the company. I think he felt that might be a little more secure in an unsecure environment that now these are my paraphrasing words that, that he, uh, might've been uncomfortable in, in the, what if the bad, what if, what if the company goes away? What if we don't come out of this on the other side and all this other shit? Um, so I think that took its toll on him. And I think that he wanted some security. He had children, a family, and decided to take this time to move on, try something else. How disappointed was Vince with this decision? I think Vince was... I think he was hurt. I think he was disappointed. Um, however, just like everything else, it was okay. Let's move on bigger and better things ahead. Basil won't be a part of it. We'll find someone else and we'll find someone better. 
so we, we gave Basil the send off. We thanked him for everything he did and, and we moved on. And the next day was just another day at the office. That's what happens, you know, <laughs> um, it's just, you, you gotta move on and you gotta keep going. I uh, remember the, the meeting that we all had, it was an offsite meeting and, uh, Vince asked everybody to give him a standing ovation when a superstar has a great match, give him a standing ovation and let him know you appreciate him. Uh, we did that for Basil. We had dinner and, and that was it. And Basil came back years later with the XFL and has been a part of, he's been on the board of, uh, directors for the company. Um, but he's, he's one of those guys that has a way of being able to put deals together and, 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 uh, communicate with Vince, which can be tricky at sometimes, but he has a good way of communicating with Vince. Let's talk about the, uh, 1994 hall of fame. You guys have a ceremony for that in early June at the Omni inner Harbor international hotel. Uh, Arnold Scotland would be inducted by Bob Backlund. Bobo Brazil would be inducted by Ernie Ladd. Buddy Rogers would be inducted by Brent Hart. Chief Jay Strongbow would be inducted by Tataka. Classy Freddie Blassie would be inducted by Regis Philbin. Gorilla Monsoon would be inducted by Jim Ross. And how about this little footnote? James Dudley would be inducted by Vince McMahon. And lots of people have sort of freestyled over the years. Hey, if this guy goes in, the only guy who can induct him is Vince McMahon. And the name you hear most often with that now is the undertaker. But we've also heard reports at least this year, or if you even mention Vince McMahon's name, you find your ass fired. Um, James Dudley going into the hall of fame and Vince inducting him. We've got some listeners who may not be familiar with James Dudley and his uh, family relationship with the McMahons chat everybody up about who James was and why Vince wanted to be the one to induct him. Well, James Dudley was the original bad, bad Leroy Brown. And when I say the original bad, bad Leroy Brown, I'm not talking about the wrestler. I'm talking about the man that Jim Croce wrote the song about. And, uh, James Dudley was, uh, one of the, top stars of the Negro league, the, uh, baseball Negro league and absolute just top notch, uh, baseball player that before segregation had Jim Dudley had the opportunity to play in the majors. He would have been a huge star, a giant of a man. And he was from Washington, DC. He had a relationship with Vince's father, uh, Vincent Jess McMahon senior, and they did business together because if you were going to do business in certain parts of Washington, DC, there were segregated parts where it was very difficult for people to do business for a black man to do business in a white part of town and a white man to do business in uh, the black part of town. Well, James Dudley was able to bridge that with Vince McMahon. And James Dudley was able to go in and say, 
Vince McMahon's an honest guy. We're going to do business with him. And if anybody has a problem with it, then you've got a problem with me. So uh, Jim helped Vince tremendously in his business. Vince brought James into the wrestling business. James was also the first manager for Bobo Brazil in wrestling. So Vince McMahon made him a manager as well. Uh, but Mr. Dudley, who is how I referred to him out of reverence and a great deal of respect, um, because of his life, just an incredible life story of everything that he came up through and from and what he lived through and was one of the kindest, most gentlest people you'd ever want to meet. But Mr. Dudley would come into Baltimore he would go into Vince's office, which was about the size of a shoe closet. It could hold maybe four people. And Mr. Dudley would sit in Vince's office all night long. Vince would do business all around him with Jim just sitting there. And nobody gave it a second thought. Some people walk in and go, who's the guy in there with Vince? So that's Mr. Dudley. Okay. And Vince would always, whenever anybody would come in and say, Gentlemen, please allow me to introduce you to Mr. James Dudley. And everybody, hello, but no one knew who he was. Um, he stayed by uh, Vince's side, took care of uh, Vince Sr., took care of Vincent Kennedy, and was a trusted and loyal friend, employee, and one of the toughest son of a bitches you ever want to meet in your life, and, and an incredible athlete. It's just when people speak of the, the Negro League in baseball, James Dudley's name always comes up. Really? Yes. Because he was, he was one of those top stars. He drew. He drew. And had he, had he come along just you know a few years later, man, he'd be one of those guys. You'd be talking about Jackie Robinson, and you'd be talking about James Dudley, too. That's a big statement. Uh, talk to me a little bit about the rumor and innuendo that oftentimes as he's sitting in Vince's office, if he thinks, Hey, this next fella might be uh, a problem and make no mistake. The perception was James Dudley was for lack of a better word, Vince McMahon's heavy. And so as he's in there, if maybe this next fellow is going to be a problem, James just casually pulls out his straight razor and starts sharpening it or fidgeting with it. That might've been in the old days of, of Vince senior. I, I never saw that or heard that with Vince, uh, Vincent Kennedy, but definitely with, with his father, that, that probably was the reputation, even if it never happened. I'm sure that was a reputation because, uh, James wasn't going to take any shit off anybody. It's just fascinating to me that, you know, so many fans these days are like, Oh, who's going to be the first guy Vince and ducks. It's like, wow, that happened 25 years ago. Uh, other names. And it, and, and it meant, and, and that one probably meant more to Vince than anything. Cause he took care of his dad. I mean, it's a special yeah. place in the family. Not just, it's not just business. It's family at that point. Yeah. And, and you look at, and you look at the, the list of presenters. Oh, unbelievable. It, it, it was Ernie Ladd and Bobo Brazil. Um, Bobo was another another guy that when you you talk about class bobo brazil was just old school 
pure class. Um, just a gentleman's gentleman and huge man, just great stature, had, had a presence about him. When he walked in a room, you went, holy shit, that's somebody. And big smile on his face, charming as could be. And, of course, to be inducted by the big cat, Ernie Ladd. And, and Ernie being up there and Ernie being able to lay down the speech that he gave about Bobo Brazil and I'm going to beat the black eye of your boy. And these were things that, that that was how they drew. And it was, you couldn't get away with any of that today, but Bobo and Ernie had so much respect for each other. And Ernie had a way about him to, of, of articulating and talking people into the arena and the legendary rivalry between Bobo and Ernie and the two of them together, just, just to see them together after all those years was, was amazing to me. And then Regis Philbin coming in and doing Fred Blassie at Fred Blassie bringing damn near the whole, whole room to tears. His, his wife, Miyako, she, she was this wonderful, wonderful woman uh, from Japan. And Freddie has this gruff exterior. However, with his wife, he was a little teddy bear. And on this one night, you got the gruff, legendary, classy Freddie Blassie, you pencil neck geek, and I'm going to do all this to you, to get on up here, you little Jap, and come get something. And everybody was just uh, aghast. He, you know, he, he just referred to his wife this way. And he got up and proclaimed his love for his wife and how this woman had, had kept him alive and was the most wonderful thing in his life and presented her with this big diamond brooch and all this shit. And she just, um, another one, it, it was th this group of people that went in were just so reverence to me, man. This was a special hall of fame because it was those guys that, that were the foundation of the business back in the day. You know what I mean? And, and Regis Philbin jumping at the chance to asking to induct Fred Blassie because of their history in California. When Fred Blassie was making his name out there and Regis had a television show and, and Regis put him on because he loved wrestling and he loved Freddie. And that's when I got to know Regis and it was just, it was just a magical, magical, neat night. Buddy Rogers. Was being inducted here by Bret Hart. Uh, what can you tell us about that? You know, Buddy, being Buddy, was you know, I'll say Buddy to the outside world was the epitome of class. I don't know uh, for those that knew him. I don't know that everyone would agree with that. Right. But Buddy Rogers was a character. 
And he, to me, you know, he was the original nature boy and he was buddy fucking Rogers, man, to a nicer guy. It couldn't happen. Um, but buddy was an original rebel. You know, he, he was the NWA champion. He, he went and he did the jump to Vince, dropped the belt to Bruno, went on and, and went back and forth and just had this persona about him that he carried himself in a way that he was larger than life. He was just so flamboyant. He was so uh, everything that you would expect from the nature boy. And obviously Ric Flair emulated a lot of Buddy Rogers traits. And then to have Bret Hart, who was the new generation, right, to be able to in- induct Buddy was a pretty cool deal because in many ways they were about as anti as you could get on opposite sides of the spectrum. You know, Bret was Bret, Bret was a traditionalist. Uh, and buddy was this flamboyant one. However, they did still have that same respect for the business. And of course, Tataka, uh, inducting chief Jay Strongbow. You had a real lumby Indian in her <laughs> in inducting the Italian Joe Scarpa, but you know, the people knew him as chief Jay Strongbow. And, and so he was an honorary Indian for everybody else. And, and of course, Gorilla Monsoon, I, I would say that was probably one of the biggest thrills of Jim Ross's life is to be able to have that honor of Jim, uh, you know, inducting Gorilla Monsoon. Good God. Uh, Gino. I think there was a long line of people that would have wanted to, and I, and I don't remember what the situation was with Bobby at this point. I don't, I don't, Bobby wasn't with us. And, Bobby was the guy that should have done gorilla. Oh, absolutely. But you know, if, if not Bobby, then Jim and Jim was, a, I think Jim was more thrilled than anybody. Let's, uh, let's talk about King of the ring, but first we should set the stage. The first qualifying match goes down on May 7th, where IRS defeats Scott Steiner. The match would air on superstars. Uh, the next qualifying match happened on the May 9th episode of raw, where razor Ramon would defeat Quang or Kwong, depending on what day of the week it is for Bruce on May 14th, Mabel would beat Pierre on May 16th. Bam, bam. Bigelow would beat Sparky plug on May 21st. Jeff Jarrett would get a win over Lex Luger by count out when crush came down and fought Lex outside of the ring. Owen was scheduled to wrestle earthquake on May 23rd for a spot in the tournament. But the plan has changed when earthquake leaves the company and to explain his absence, the WWF shows footage of Yokozuna wrestling earthquake and claimed that earthquake had sustained an injury and doink would wind up taking his spot. Uh, and of course, Owen wins that match on the May 28th superstars. The one, two, three kid would pin Adam bomb. And on the final qualifying match, Jimmy Del Rey was originally scheduled to face Tatanka on raw and on May 30th. But crush winds up taking Del Rey's place. The reason given is that crush's manager, Mr. Fuji made a deal with Jim Cornette, Del Rey's manager to allow crush to compete. The match ends in a double count out after Fuji and chief Jay Strongbow, who was with the talk again involved 
And this leads to a lumberjack match on raw the following week, which Tatanka wins after Luger interferes. Now the match doesn't air until June 6th, which is around a week after the latest edition of the WWE magazine shipped out to subscribers. And in that issue, Tatanka was already listed in the tournament brackets, squaring off with Owen Hart in round one. I mean, I guess shit happens. There's nothing you can do to fix this or prevent it, but it's gotta be a little embarrassing for those involved, right? Well, it was, they were going off of the Karnak says, right? So, <laughs> so Karnak was wrong a couple of months, three months ahead of time. And, uh, he fucked that one up bastard. What do you, um, what do you remember about earthquake leaving the company here? I mean, it's weird that he was a part of it and then winds up not being well, John at this time, John was also a little discontented. I think that John had the, he had been over in Japan. John was a big star in Japan in the sumo world. And there were just a lot of rumblings guys had felt that they had done their time and weren't going anywhere. So they were looking for new avenues and with all the looming lawsuits and everything else going on, it was a tough decision for talent. Your contract's coming up. Do you want to weather this out or do you want to sit out and see what the hell's going to happen? And John was one of those that was in that situation Plus he had an opportunity, uh, same thing that go back to Japan and maybe make some good money and not have to travel as much. And that was what was weighing on him. And he just looked at it as an opportunity. His body was breaking down. John's a big guy and he needed, to he needed some time off and felt that maybe getting the rest by not working every week and going to Japan just a few times that might give him the rest he needed. When guys are feeling like, well, it's not ever ex- explicitly said, certainly some guys are like, oh, fuck, man, now's the time to jump off this sinking ship. Does Vince sort of make a list about, I'm going to remember that? Vince understood. Uh, you know, Vince, especially during this time, Vince understood because we weren't signing new talent and when you're not signing new talent, a lot of the old talents looking around going, well, shit, uh, who do I have left to work with and what is there left for me? So you, you've got to make that business decision of, and maybe WCW doesn't want them. Maybe they don't have room for them. They, They had a roster full of guys that they couldn't afford during this period. So, um, it just was a tumultuous time. There wasn't a whole lot of choice. And if you didn't have that Japanese or the European connections where you could go and get work, you know, four to five times a year for extended periods of time, you had to do something. And it was lesser two evils, which way are you going to go? And yeah, it was tough. It, it really was tough, but. I think that everybody just had to make their own decision and weigh it out in their own mind with their own families and see what's best for them. We should mention that, uh, 
as if this isn't enough on Vince, all the stuff we've ran through with the lawsuits and steroid trial and all the business challenges that we're going through, he's going to miss the King of the ring because he's got a herniated disc, uh, that he suffered, um, and then had to have repaired surgically. I don't know, less than a week prior to this. Is this the first pay-per-view you remember where Vince wasn't there? Yeah, it was. Sure as hell was. <laughs> and it was also, you know, during the time I, I remember going through and the first TV that we took Vince to, which was after this, was White Plains. And um, Linda was terrified because Pat was driving and, She's like, Pat, don't hit any bumps. He can't be jarred. He can't do this. He can't do that. And first thing Pat did was, you know, tear out of the parking lot, uh, which Vince loved and laughed his ass off of. But yes, this was the first pay-per-view that we were going to be sans Vince. We'd done TVs without him, but uh, not the pay-per-view. So as a result of Vince missing this, it's Gorilla Monsoon. It's Randy Savage and it's fucking Art Donovan doing commentary. Now, I would assume the original plan is for Vince to be the other guy in there and not Art. And you guys had to call an audible and you went with a linebacker from the Colts in the 50s and a Hall of Famer. But wow. Chat me up. How does Art Donovan get in this spot? Well,. That's a funny story. We, you know, and it wasn't because Vince wasn't there. If, if, if Vince had been there, he probably would have uh, done the play-by-play in place of Monsoon because he had the rapport with Randy and had been working with Randy. And it probably would have been a little bit of a different dynamic. And Monsoon working with Randy was new as well. So you got new Randy and Monsoon, and then you add in this guy that, last watch wrestling match, probably on the DuPont network with gorgeous George and art. We were in Baltimore. Art Donovan was a big name in Baltimore and art was doing uh, a television show. And he also did a radio show there. Uh, very quick witted, uh, funny off the wall, but football oriented shit, Baltimore oriented shit. So people in Baltimore, he was, he was a hometown son. He was, he was their guy. He was lovable art Donovan and, and people enjoyed his, his wit and his wackiness, if you will. But then there's the rest of the world that doesn't know who the fuck art Donovan is or care. Uh, so we had gone back and forth and, and Kevin had a rapport with art. Kevin Dunn and thought, well, we could try this guy. It'll mean something for Baltimore. It'll sell some tickets in Baltimore. And who knows? If he's half as entertaining as he is in the shit that he does in Baltimore, maybe he can adapt, man. Maybe, you know, Monsoon can bring it out of him. Savage can bring it out of him. He can have some fun asking some, some wacky fan questions from the standpoint of a of a guy that's never seen wrestling before. And 
and throw out some weird observations. Well, that part we got. Yeah. Um, how quickly do you realize, I mean, let's, let's talk about the prep. When you, you make the pitch, you make the offer, you make the presentation. Does anybody say, okay, we got to get him all these tapes and he needs to come to the production meeting or I'm not saying that to be a dick. I mean, clearly none of that happened, but maybe some of it should have. When did you realize, uh, we fucked this up. When the camera rolled, (laughs) When, when the red light went on, um, no, I don't, you know what? I don't think that any of that would have helped. I, I don't think that him watching a second of tape. Well, here's what I mean. Like, had he been to a production meeting or watched tape with some of you guys, my, my question is, would some, whoever was with him, wouldn't they have maybe at that point said, oh, fuck, we can't do this. We need to call an audible and get out of this. We were already there. Okay. I mean, we were already there and, and it was, it it was awful in many ways, you know, in many ways, when we looked at the show on paper, it it was a very simplistic show straightforward, man. It's tournaments, King of the ring. And then you got Piper and, uh, Lawler at the end. It's, it wasn't that fucking complicated. It's a tournament. So we felt with monsoon and savages, the anchor, we've got it. And Pat and I pretty much, I mean, we had the show in the back of our head. We, we had it in mind. I get a phone call, um, the morning of from Mick, Ricky Medlock, uh, who was lead singer for Blackfoot. He's with Leonard Skinner now and Ricky's a friend of mine. And he says, Hey man, you guys are in Baltimore. I'm across the street at the stadium. Uh, I'd love to come by and see some of the matches and shit. And you know, if you guys get done, come on by the concert. And I'm thinking to myself, well, shit, man, that's Ricky Medlock. I'm a big fan of Ricky Medlock. I love Blackfoot. He wasn't with Skinner yet, but God damn it. He was Ricky Medlock and uh, I love Ricky. So I said, well, what time's your show? And their show, they were about an hour, hour and a half after us. I said, you want to come by and do uh, America the Beautiful or Star Spangled Banner? He says, yeah, sure. I don't give a shit. So I called Vince. I said, hey, uh, Ricky Medlock's in town. He's right across the street. And he's he's able to do the national anthem. Can Vince I, says, can I guess? Fuck. Huh? <laughs> I was gonna guess who the fuck is Ricky Medlock. That makes who me the fuck is Ricky Medlock. That's so great. Blackfoot. What's that? I said Vince. It's, it's a rock band, man. He's, I mean, he's doing a stadium show across the street from us tonight, and uh, I said he's, yeah, you know, he's well known. People know him. Uh, he's people, not... people know him. Yeah, I know him. Uh, you know, wasn't Steve and Edie or fucking Robert Goulet, but it was Ricky fucking Medlock. And he's like, is he any good? I said, he'll be great. I said, it'll be different, but it'll be great. 
So I said, hey, Rick, man, can you uh, come on by, do a sound check? And we didn't have the, you know, like now they've got those really great, uh, what the shit I always want on stage. Sorry, folks, my shit's kicking in. Um, hey, this is, you're doing good, buddy. With, with 4,000 stitches in your mouth and all hopped <laughs> up on pain pills, we're having fun. Thank you for making okay. the time. Uh, he didn't have the, we didn't have the good monitors in the ring and shit, but like now they have them in your ears. Those really great where you can hear yourself and you don't have to, when you're singing, you don't have that delay and you need to hear yourself in real time when you're singing. And he comes out, he says, Oh, you guys don't have that. I said, no, he goes, it's all right. I can count. I can do it. I got it. So he did a few rehearsals. I thought he sounded great. Tricky fucking Medlock, man. Leonard Skinner. There's nothing anybody can say bad about fucking Ricky Medlock. I'm sorry, man. I love him. And so Vince says, how was it? I said, ah, it was great. It'll be good, man. It'll be different. We got, you know, we got old and we got new. With Art Donovan and you got Ricky who was, was current and had a hit, you know, train, train, all the shit. And... We opened the show with Ricky. <laughs> Acapella. <sighs> and I love Ricky, man. Sure. If I mentioned have I mentioned I love Ricky? Yeah, he's great. We, he, we he really him. is great. Well, we got it. <laughs> he's fucking awesome, man. He's fucking <laughs> He is fucking awesome. Yeah. I it was fucking horrible. It was, it was like God awful earth shattering, horrible. And you could tell that he couldn't hear himself and I could see him counting and, and he got through it and I loved him for coming and doing it. And it took giant coconut balls to call me in the morning, come over and do a sound check and then come over and do our show right before going over and doing a stadium show across the street. And I loved him for it. And I was so grateful. But <laughs> it was, it, it, it wasn't one of our finer, um, it was not good vocal moments. It wasn't good. And he was dressed like Ricky Medlock, yep. which is cool, but everybody else is in tuxedos and all this other shit. And then there's Ricky. And, um, and it doesn't help that, you know, and it's interesting when you look back and you realize, Hey, Vince wasn't there, but the production is a little off here. Like they don't have the lighting right for him. When they first go to the announcers, they're dark as shit. They're not lit. There was, there was a lot of production snafus here that weren't normal for the company at the time. Is this a cost cutting measure? Are you using different folks for a different union? Is there less production meeting and attention to detail without Vince there? Is it sort of talk me through that? This was a, um, and I love Roddy Piper to death. This was (laughs) a lot of this was Roddy Piper. Um, you see, I, I, I was the conduit with Roddy Piper. 
And so when we had Roddy and there were issues, I would deal with, with Roddy. Well, Vince could go deal with everything else. In this situation, we didn't have Vince to deal with everything else. It was just Pat and I there running the whole show by ourselves. And I still had to deal with Roddy. And there were still just some creative issues to be worked out. And um, Roddy can be a last-minute guy. So... <laughs> I, I found a lot of my time dealing with Roddy and not being able to pay as much attention as I probably should have to those things, making sure that we did a complete uh, rehearsal with the opens and, and the whole nine yards. Um, I relied a lot on other people to prepare Art Donovan and, and Gino and everybody and I think I, I had Jim Ross helping them, but I don't know that there was any, any amount of preparation that was going to get art in the game. It just was going to be, let's feed him and go and see what we come up with. I've been assured he's going to be just fine. And it was in reality, when you look back at the pay-per-view, man, it was, it was matches. It was a tournament. It was a story in the matches. And it was that was the story of the night. Who's going to end up is the king of the ring. And then you got a personal issue with Lawler and, and uh, Piper. And man, let's go have us a wrestling show. You know, this was our this was our wrestling show of the year. You know what I mean? Right. This was the one. This was the tournament, folks. You're going to get competitive matches. You're going to get, you know. Just down and dirty. What does that have to do with lighting? I, I didn't have time to go through the shit, man. Okay. Got it. No, no, that's fine. That's, that's the answer. I, didn't, I didn't have time to go through and look at all of it. Um, we didn't do a lot of the normal, just simple. Let's get everybody in position, see how we look. And it was run by the seat of our pants. Plus. I'm dealing with Vince on the phone. Yeah. That's gotta be a nightmare. That's what I was going with. It seems like anytime anything was less than up to his standard and he's, he doesn't have 9 million distractions cause he's not on site. He's gotta be just wearing your ass out and no cell phone. So the, the phone was in his office. So now you've got to be in the office to take the call and you can't run the show and talk to him. Yeah, and to watch the monitor and run the show and do everything else. And if you're not there to answer the phone when he's calling, then let me ask you. Calling the truck, and the truck is calling you on headset to go to the office to take the call. To so it, it was um, silly question, but humor me because I I don't know I've never been there. The the production piece is that not something that Kevin Dunn could have. Uh, said, Hey, I'll, I'll run rehearsals today. Sure. Yeah, he could have, but, but Kevin was in the same boat. Kevin's in the same boat on the phone with Vince and, and Vince talking about every other thing. And you can't, you can't do both. You can't sit there and talk to Vince and then say, okay, guys, let's go through and let's rehearse this right now. Well, hang on Vince. I got to God damn it. 
um, it was, it was, it was challenging and it was, uh, we, we probably just weren't as prepared as we should have been. We weren't nearly as prepared as we should have been. We came into it thinking that, man, this can be a piece of cake, right? This is matches. Yeah. It's just wrestling. No big deal. Yeah. This one's matches. This, this one is not, I don't have a lot of Gaga going on here. And I, I didn't anticipate because I felt I'd done everything I could do ahead of time with, with Roddy and, and Lawler. Um, you know, when, when I came in, I, I felt that was done. And then you get there and Roddy wants to talk, wants to sit down and that's an hour and a half of your day right off the bat. And then it goes on through the, through the night. All through the night. And, let's, and through the night, some of those have to be run by Vince. And it's like, shit. Let's get into it. The dark match is Sparky Plug pinning Quang or Quang and what is said to have been a horrible match. Goddamn Quang. Next Great up. match. Best match ever. We get, main, event, main event anywhere in uh, the Inner Harbor that night. Well, opening package for this show was actually pretty decent for its time. Uh, first up, we've got razor Ramon getting a win over bam, bam, Bigelow. They go eight and a half minutes. Uh, I found it fun that the little, uh, door attendants didn't open the doors for Luna and bam, bam. They just bust right through. Now the finish comes when Bigelow's on the top rope for a moonsault and Ramon gets up suplexes and backward into the ring for the pin. Meltzer would call it a fair opener and gave it a star in three quarters. Two all-time greats in here, two guys who, uh, are capable of putting on a really, really great match, but this one was just okay. Uh, I understand you may be some of this as we're pacing ourselves and there's a lot of matches. We don't want to show too much in the opening match. What'd you think of this one? And why was razor bam the first and smartest place to start star power? You know, you want to start off with some good star power and also it wasn't bad. It was solid. You're not going to get a lot of action out of. <laughs> you know, out of Bam Bam at that time, he's a big guy, and we were kind of in transitional place there with him as well. But it was solid, and it was two big names, so it was a way to get people up. You got two bulls colliding in there to start the thing off, and we were kind of hoping it would get it off to a fairly good start. Nice pace. Let's talk about the next match. We've got IRS getting a win over Mabel. When uh, Mabel climbs to the middle rope, IRS shakes the rope. Mabel falls into the ring and IRS pins him holding the rope, uh, five minutes and 38 seconds. It is interesting, you know, Mabel even here, or I'm sorry, IRS, even here in 94 seems like a bit of a dated gimmick. Uh, but Mabel is directly opposite of what you guys have been marketing with the new generation commercials in here. Uh, he's going to get wrapped to the ring by your, your best friend, Oscar, uh, Mabel's going to do his best little dancing deal there. And Art come Donovan, on, Bruce, come on, Bruce, Art Donovan has the line of the show. And, and I guess we should mention he asked during this show, and this is the most famous Art Donovan quote, how much does this guy weigh? And I think it's six times in the show. I think it was six times during this match. He says something in here. <laughs> This is great acting, which is just tremendous. Um, half a star, 
Meltzer would say bad match, but no worse than you would expect. And his observation, his being arts observations, like when IRS is coming to the ring, he, he says something like, Randy, is this one of the wrestlers? He looks like a businessman. And then he asks about Mo, uh, or Oscar. Hey, who's the guy in the white suit? I, I don't know why, but then he explains, you know, who it is. And he says, oh, I thought maybe he was the guy coming to take him to the hospital. Ha. Huh. Just fucking not great. Uh, the line of the, the show for me was macho man though. in that first match with bam, bam, Bigelow, uh, he takes a, a low blow and Randy says something like, I got to wonder if Luna's going to like bam as much later or something like that. And art is like, you mean, because he might get disqualified. And Randy's like, I'll explain it to you later. Art Donovan was a fucking train wreck before the first bell rang. And it just got, it was the gift that keeps on giving. So it was. And so therefore see, that's the unexpected added entertainment value that you got with this show. It was shitty. (laughs) It was added entertainment value. That, that no one expected. They thought, Hey, Art Donovan, what the hell are we going to get? We don't know. And then they got it. They said, Oh fuck. What the hell? <laughs> hey, how much does this guy weigh? Hey, who's he? Guy looks like an accountant. It's like the IRS guy that just did my taxes. Yeah. He didn't even get it that far. But yeah. Yeah. It's something else, man. Next the up. gift kept on giving just like herpes. what do you think? Oh, that's a deep cut. Uh, the Mabel finish here. <laughs> He's like turtle, like waiting on IRS to jump into position. Maybe he was just a tad slow. No chemistry in this one at all. Do you, I mean, you can't blame that on Rotunda, right? This is all on Mabel. This was the drizzling fucking shits. Yeah. <laughs> It was so fucking bad. It was, it was like honey dripping over molasses. I don't know what that means, but cool. Well, you ever drip honey and molasses together? No, I'm uh, very fucking slow and not a lot to it. Well, there is something to Owen Hart and to Taka. It's the best match on the card up to this point. They're going to go eight minutes and 18 seconds. We should mention that Tataka at this point has lost a match. This isn't his first loss. Um, Tataka's going to go for a sunset flip. Hart isn't going to go over and just falls on him, hooks the legs, gets the pin. Really a pretty good match, but lots of near falls. And then the actual pin uh, sort of coming out of nowhere was pretty good. Three, three and a quarter stars is what Meltzer gave it. Best match of the night so far, huh? Yeah, actually, the beautiful thing about this match, it was solid. They beat the shit out of each other. It looked real and everything. Well, looked real cause it was real, but it was, they went out and from <laughs> look at, come on, man, <laughs> look at what they had to follow. <laughs> You're coming off of going off of poor IRS and Mabel. And now you got to talk and Owen Hart. No one knows that he's going over tonight. No one knows that he's here to shine and, you know, fucking, steal something and they went out there and they busted their ass. I thought it was 
I thought it was a really good match. It's one of those that you can at least watch and go, okay, hey, shit, this is a good match. I like this. Next up, one, two, three kid and Jeff Jarrett. They go about four and a half minutes. One, two, three kid gets the win with a small package. Meltzer would say it was all action, but far too short. The real story though, comes afterwards. After the match, Jeff Jarrett is furious that he lost with a small package like this, especially to the underdog one, two, three kid. And he gives him not one, not two, but three old school Memphis style pile drivers. And then three Jerry Lawler fist drops off the top rope that, uh, maybe he should have let Jerry keep, uh, two and a quarter stars. Uh, he's attacking referees after the fact, this was fun for me to watch. First of all, because you really get a whole new appreciation for how long Jeff Jarrett wore this pseudo stripper gear that everybody makes fun of. And you can see how really uncomfortable one, two, three kid was with like fan interaction on his way to the crowd. He's not sure. Am I supposed to be the fiery baby face? Am I supposed to be smiling? I mean, he's really excited to be there, but it looks like he becomes himself once the bell rings and they are just off to the races. I enjoyed the match and I enjoyed the post-match, uh, but it was fun to see both of these guys as very young performers sort of finding their way. what do you think? Well, first of all, I'd like to say something about Jeff Jarrett's gear. To me, it's still my favorite Jeff Jarrett gear that he's ever had because it was different. It looked good and, and it was different and made him stand out. Uh, kid, during this time, he was still kind of follow, finding himself and getting out there and doing what he could do. But they did. They had a good match, short, although it may be. And then afterwards, Jeff Jarrett went and spending my days working hard on the go. But the hands on the clock kept moving too slow because he couldn't wait to be alone with his baby that night. That's all I got, folks. Well, we're not mad at it. Um, next up, we've got our world title match, but first we've got a couple of promos, one from Shawn Michaels and, uh, Kevin Nash, and then one from Bret Hart and the promo with Sean is sort of fun because he says something like, um, oh, and if I've got, uh, you know, some bad fortune were to befall upon Bret Hart and something awesome wasn't going to happen to him. That would just be terrible. So that's kind of fun. It's planting the seeds for, you know, they had the intercontinental rivalry and then the one main event of survivor series. And of course we know that's going to continue. You can tell Kevin Nash, not totally comfortable doing promos just yet. Uh, it says he has one word for Bret Hart, Jack knife, and he's got the intercontinental title on one shoulder. And after tonight, he'll have the world title on the other. And then we go to Bret Hart and I even felt like Bret was a little uncomfortable doing his promo. He's doing his best and he's trying to be confident, but it almost, uh, I don't know now that we've just recently seen so much of Bret's great stuff from 1997, he's still trying to figure it out here. And, and of course he's saying that since Shawn Michaels is going to be on the outside for diesel, he's got somebody watching his back, but he won't give a hint. And of course we know it's going to be Jim Neidhart. They're going to go 22 and a half minutes. Um, this is probably the longest match diesel has ever had. He works the match with a, a torn groin as well. Um, and to think that this is the former Vinny Vegas and Oz, 
I don't know how you can say this is anything other than a good match. It got three and three quarter stars. Um, Diesel's going to give Bret Hart the jackknife power bomb. Nightheart's going to jump in the ring and attack him for the DQ. And that leaves the story open-ended since quote, we don't know if Hart would have kicked out of the jackknife and Nightheart then walks out to the dressing room, leaving Hart, who was then double teamed by Shawn Michaels and Diesel until the officials break them up. And Meltzer would say the announcers did a poor job of getting over the significance of Nightheart leaving and that we don't know if Hart could have kicked out of the jackknife, both of which appeared to be angles built upon for the future. What'd you think of the match? I mean, it's really a prime spot, a world title match for Diesel. Of course, we know, you know, he's going to, he's the intercontinental champion, going to become the tag champion. And by the end of the year, a handful of months after this, he's going to be Bob Backlund and, and be world champion. What'd you think of the match? And was there ever a consideration since, you know, it's a steroid trial. We need a monster. We need him to be clean. We need somebody who gets attention in the airport. Diesel sort of checks all the boxes. Was it discussed? Maybe put it on him here. Absolutely not. Uh, the here's the thing about this match, and this this was pivotal in so many ways because we did see something in Diesel, and I think that Diesel got a bad rep during a lot of this shit. Cause diesel wasn't a great worker at that time, man. He, he had never been pushed. He had never been in any kind of situation like, like this for damn sure, especially in this kind of a high profile match. However, he had been around Sean. He had been around Brett. He had been around these guys and he was getting better and he had a look and there was a ground swell around him, man. People are like wanting him to do more, wanting to see more, wanting to, wanting him tested. You take this match and Vince saw the monster diesel and and thinking, shit, man, what the hell can we do with this guy? And that allure of the audience going, man, give me the big guy. What's, what's he going to do while making still, because we're still in a building process with Brett. And you're still getting bred out there to be the, the, the new generation, if you will. So it's that catch 22 to me, it was the coming out party and maybe the rumble before that was coming out party for diesel, but this was diesel's coming out party in a single encounter and a spotlight. It was also to me that defining moment where you went, holy fuck, who, who can't Brett work with? And Brett was able to go out and put together a match with a seven foot monster with a pulled groin, even without the pulled groin limited in his skills at that point in his career and make it all believable and have a hell of a match and make everybody involved in that match have an important role and carry it out to the best of their abilities. Um, and I'm not, you know, I'd say 90% of that goes to Brett, but a, a great deal of that goes to diesel. Cause he hung, he hung and he was able to go in there. And I love it when they say, Oh, well he looked blowed up or he looked out of place. 
he was supposed to look that way. That was the story of the match. This big bastard, he's never been tested to this limit. So when you hear the experts say, oh, he's blowed up, he can't go, that's a story. You're telling a story of a big guy that maybe doesn't have that wind capacity and that cardio that the smaller, more agile athlete has. So that smaller, agile athlete's going to wear him down to do that. It's called the work, folks. And I think that both guys played to that so fucking well. And the way that Diesel was able to hang in, make it believable, Brett being the smaller guy, when you look at it on paper, go, Brett should be killed. But he was able to get through every single thing and made Diesel a bigger monster all along the way with everything that he did. And that, to me, was just, I enjoyed the hell out of the match. And I I remember thinking, well, it's Brett, but I think if we could program Diesel with the right guys, that, man, they're going to believe in this big bastard. Because he, well, he's, he's believable. He looks the part. And on that night, he proved that he could work the part too. Any concern with him working with a torn groin that he's not going to be able to go? Yeah. What was Definitely the Definitely concern, but uh, he felt that he could. And you know, he had the compression shorts and all that other shit. It wasn't bad enough that he wasn't inoperable. He wasn't in a place where he couldn't go. So that was never an issue, but it was, is how much is it going to hamper him? How much is it going to hamper the performance at this point? Did Vince already know we're going to make him champ sooner rather than later? It was just a matter of trying to test him and see what what we had. We wanted to test and see what we had. We, We didn't know whether or not he could hold up in that single environment. And he did. And this was the point where we kind of went, Hmm. You know what? Down the road, he he could be it. So let's keep it moving here. Um, Jim Neidhart returning. How does that come about? Yeah, the big bastard. Yeah, yeah the Bulls ready, Vince. Yeah, yeah, you looking for opponents for Brett? Yeah, they. They, uh, they tear it down. They, they, yeah, bring, bring him, you know, they, they were the foundation of the hearts. And they, what a match that would be. You got, you got Owen. Put him with Owen. Put him in, yeah, big bastard. And it, it kind of fell in, and we really didn't know what the fuck to do with Jim at that point. So just leave it with question marks and figure it out later. Yeah, you know, uh, you put it out there. He he kept Brett from losing the title. Right. You had the open-ended, why'd you leave me? And then, look, I wasn't there to fight for you after the fact. I was there to make sure you kept the championship. So there were a lot of different stories. We didn't know what we had in Jim at the time. It was another... It was another, yeah, yeah, if you could, uh, the big rhino, uh, just, uh, you know, give him a chance and, and Vince is a softy. Well, 
Next up, Razor Ramon gets a win over IRS with the Razor's Edge. Pretty uneventful match. Um, five minutes, 13 seconds, three quarters of a star. Meltzer would say they didn't even really attempt a good match. It's just sort of there. And it's really hard to follow a long world title match like what we just had. So it's probably a bad spot for any match. The match after that, though, is Owen Hart. You know what, though? I'm going to tell you something. You know why it was put there? Because we we thought that if the the Brett and Diesel match didn't deliver, this would. And it worked the opposite way. So are you adjusting times on the fly? Oh, I always adjust the times on the fly. So, yeah. So my question is like, and I know you don't remember cause you probably don't have your book in front of you, but originally was, was diesel Brett slotted for 10 minutes. He, cause, and, and I know some people are hearing that saying, well, what the fuck does it matter? Well, diesel has never been in these deep waters before Vince isn't here. We've got a lot of tournament matches going on. And oh, by the way, the guy who's unproven in this match also has a torn groin. So yeah. It, yeah. So in my head, you probably send Brett out there and say something like, and I'm freestyling, fill it out. If it's going well, do the whole deal. But, uh, if he's hurting and, and it's, it's a cluster, just go home. I got backup. Yeah. Is that that basically the pitch? Yes. And because it was, we didn't know. And I knew that if it, if it stunk the joint out, did have confidence that Razor and IRS could go out and pick it back up. And here's what sucks. The match after Razor Ramon IRS is probably one of those matches that has the time cut because Owen Hart and one, two, three kid only gets three minutes and 37 seconds. Um, Owen wins with a sharpshooter. Meltzer would say, well, this was far and away the best three minutes and 37 seconds of the show. From a storyline standpoint, this match made no sense. First off, the business of a babyface being injured earlier in the car, teasing he can't come back, then miraculously coming back, has been done to death over the last year on WWF pay-per-view shows to the point that the unexpected has become the very expected. Second, after taking such a horrendous beating from Jarrett, Kid didn't even sell the idea that he was injured as he did every high spot he could fit into three minutes and 37 seconds in this match. If the angle was going to be ignored later in the show, why do it? Third of all, if they're going to work a hot competitive match and use this match as the showpiece of the new generation theme, which they attempted to do, why limit it to just three minutes and 37 seconds when they could have had a classic if they were given more time. It's not like this show was loaded with great wrestlers and potential great matches that some good matches had to be shortchanged on time. Let's face it. When it was over, this was really a three-man card of Owen, Brett, and Kid. He loved the match, but he felt like it was way too short. And I do recommend that everybody go watch it. It's only three minutes and 37 seconds, but it's probably one of the better matches you'll see this week. Uh, Three and a quarter stars. And he says, this was about as good of a short match as you'll ever see. What did you think? And what do you think of his criticisms? Well, his criticisms are fucked up because he doesn't know the story we were telling. And... The match was great. It was excellent. They had tremendous chemistry, but the idea was to get to the Owen Hart razor match later on in the night. And well, hang on now. If you've got Jeff Jarrett delivering three pile drivers and then kid doesn't sell it. Kid should have sold it. Okay. Yeah. Kid definitely should have sold it. And, and that would have helped it a whole hell of a lot more, 
but instead they went out and just did their shit and, and had a, had a great match and it was a great match story wise, not exactly the right story at the time because where we were getting to was Owen going through kid quickly to give Owen a little bit of rest to get to the razor match later on where Owen finally comes victorious and becomes King of hearts. Let's get to the uh, tag match. Here's the head shrinkers, head shrinkers retaining the tag titles over Yokozuna and crush. And what a fucking hodgepodge tag team that feels like. Um, they go nine minutes and 31 seconds and Lex Luger's distraction causes crush to get pinned in a finish that Ray Charles could see coming that according to the wrestling observer. And he also says Donovan came out with another line of the year here. When he saw Yokozuna for the first time, gorilla, that man's legs are as big as most men's thighs, which is kind of fun. Uh, so the, <laughs> the, the payback is <laughs> Luger lost his match because crush distracted him in the tournament here. So now Luger is repaying that, uh, by distracting crush from his chance to win the tag cha- tag titles star and a half sort of, uh, just sort of there for me on this one. what do you think? <laughs> it was there for you. <laughs> well, I mean, listen, we had it to watch fucking it painful, man. It's just, you know, and I know you're going to get mad when I say this, but these guys got nine minutes and 31 seconds and kid and Owen get three thirty-seven. What the fuck flip flop it. Okay. Well, no, because the, the, the idea behind the kid match was for it to be short for Owen. Um, and this one was six minutes and 31 seconds of entrances. Just getting fucking Yokozuna to the ring. This was horrible. This was just drizzling fucking shits. <laughs> oh, it's great too. Let me run through the list again. So you've got crush Yokozuna and the head shrinkers and the crowd starts chanting USA. Yeah. So I, I guess they're cheering for the head shrink because they're not cheering for Yokozuna. I don't know. Uh, when, when Yoko and crush come out, art says something like, Oh, how much does this guy weigh? Awazuna? Is this Awazuna? And then later he's talking about the head shrinkers. Who are these guys? These guys from the Pacific islands or what? And then when Lex Luger, one of the biggest stars on the entire promotion who was, uh, figured in and main events for the last year comes out in his red, white, and blue pants. Art says, who's the fellow with the American flag. Is Vince dying a thousand deaths? I mean, he's fresh off neck surgery. He's got federal charges. People are suing him out the ass. He's laid up. The show's not lit for shit. And this guy, this fucking guy. At this point in the show, (laughs) that was kind of the reaction that I was getting from Vince. (laughs) God. Damn, this is the shit. And, uh, yeah. And then I just left the office. I wouldn't take the phone calls anymore. I, I knew I was getting one at the end of the night. Yep. Just take your ass chewing all at once. Um, and I was, I knew it was a horrible show and I didn't need uh, all that much more reinforcement that it was a horrible show. <laughs> we all knew it was a horrible show. 
We're just trying to get the fuck through it. And Pat's walking around with his fucking papers in his back pocket, pencil behind the ear. And just, ay, yeah, 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 the pants, it, 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 shit, they don't listen. And yeah, I, I, I'm serious. At this point, this was, I think, the last time that I spoke to Vince until the end of the night where um, I said, man, I've got to go. And, you know, the, the last two matches I've got to focus on. And, and he just laughed. I hope it's better than what it's been. God damn. Hey, and what did you think of Yoko and Crush as a tag team? Bad. Yeah, we agree. <laughs> I mean, thank you. It just was fucking bad. Head Shrinkers, yeah. big managed by Captain Lou. Uh, how's that pairing come to be? Okay. Yeah. I think that was a Vince rib on me because Albano would come to TVs and shit and Lou would always go over and, and talk to Vince and Vinny, Vinny. Hey, I got an idea. How about I do this? I'm a tag team. I'm a manager of tag team champions and I could do this and I'll take your next check. Jack team champions and Hey, Vinny, Vinny, let me do this. Vinny, let me do this. Well, Vince would go out on commentary and he'd send Lou to me. Hey, Bruce, I talked to Vinny. Vinny said I could do this. And Vinny, but I don't Lou, Vince didn't say anything to me, man. Um, let me talk to him. We'll see what we can do tomorrow. We'll see what we do, blah, blah, blah. So when we started doing Raw Live and shit, and he started doing this shit to me, we were in, fuck, I think it was Poughkeepsie. And Lou had been in the back and Lou Vince had been driving me nuts all fucking day. And Lou had been driving me nuts all fucking day. So I heard Vince tell Lou, just go talk to Bruce. Bruce will find a spot in the show for you. So, all right, you want to play ha ha motherfucker? And they were out doing commentary and I believe it was a head shrinker match or something like that. <laughs> and Luke comes up to me at gorilla in the middle of a live show and says, Brucey baby, Brucey baby, what are we going to do tonight? Vinny said, you, you got some for me. I said, yes, go down and do commentary with Vince. When right now, just go to the ring, pick up a headset, just start doing color with him. He fucking goes out the curtain, went down, sat down and did commentary with Vince. And on his way down, Vince is going, Bruce, what's going on? So Lou's going to do commentary with you this match. Silence. Lou sat down, did commentary. Afterwards, he goes, don't ever fucking do that to me again. I said, don't ever stop sending him to me and I won't. But yeah, I, that was how I kind of remedied that. Yeah, just go talk to Bruce. Bruce will get something for you. Okay, I got something for you. Go do live commentary with him. Cured that. Yeah, that, that handled that. All right, next up, Owen Hart, Razor Ramon. 
Uh, it's it's what Bruce called the main event. I got six minutes and 35 seconds. Owen, of course, pins razor becomes the king of the ring tournament champion. Uh, Meltzer would say this match wasn't bad, but again, it was too short considering the purpose that this was an impact match that theoretically these guys are good enough. And they did a lot of good wrestling early and traded near falls. Hart went up for a moonsault, but Ramon got up and gave him a backward suplex and then went for the razor's edge. But Hart flipped Ramon over the top rope. Nightheart comes out and a clothesline and post Ramon and then throws him back in the ring or Hart scores the pin after an elbow drop. Both men attack Ramon after the match as fans chant for Brett to do a run in, but instead Brett just does an interview. And then there's the coronation ceremony for Owen Hart, who's now going to change his nickname from the rocket to the king of hearts. So now the, the truth has been revealed. Jim Neidhart, while he saved the title for Brett, he's not actually on Brett's side of this family feud. He's with Owen and now Owen's finding himself in the middle of this push where he had the, the big win at the last pay-per-view over Bret Hart. Remember that was WrestleMania 10, the most recent pay-per-view, but the show goes off the air where even though Owen beat Brett Brett's on everyone's shoulders as the champion. And now fast forward to the next pay-per-view and another family member doesn't side with Brett instead sides with Owen and Owen wins the King of the ring, which his brother Brett had the year before. So great story. Really love where we're headed. We know we've got SummerSlam for the world title and the cage match sort of circled as where we're going to wind up. Is this the, at this point, this has got to be everything Owen Hart has been waiting for his entire career. Is it not? Well, yeah, for the push. I mean, it was something that elongated what a lot of people never thought would happen, getting more than one or two matches out of Brett and Owen. Because you had the victory at WrestleMania. You come back with the rematches, the heart attack tour after that. Well, now Owen is following in Brett's footsteps by becoming king of the ring. His next step is the WWE championship now. So it was a logical progression. It added fuel to the fire. You had Neidhart in there who was neither fish nor foul when we started out. And... We even carried it on a little bit, you know, as Neidhart, Fisher, Fowl. Yes, he helped Owen more, but he did help Brett, too. Um, it was it was that building of Owen Hart that was another example of the way that Owen would take whatever he was given, uh, small or large as it may be, and make it ten times bigger. Because when he became the king of hearts, I mean, he did change his gear, changed all his shit, embraced it, and made it more than a lot of people ever imagined it could ever be. So, yeah, fucking Owen, man, to me, just so great. And this was another one of those examples of you gave him an inch and he took two miles. Really, really good stuff. Um the coronation ceremony, a little silly, but I mean, it's cool because it's Owen and you know what this means to one of the guys who, you know, really deserves it. One of the good guys in wrestling. One of the things I wanted to mention to you here is Todd Pettengill goes over to interview the governor 
And he's trying to... We had all the stars there, fucking Conrad. <laughs> Here we go. So he's got the governor of Maryland there, and he's trying to ask, hey, man, need you to make a pick here. Who do you got, Jerry Lawler or Roddy Piper? And the governor picks Piper but says, really, I'm more of a Hulk Hogan fan myself. God damn. Todd Pettengill looks like he's going to have a sheer panic attack, pulls the mic and the interview is over. Just when you thought this shit couldn't get any more sideways and your phone's not lighting up enough in the back. Woo. Yeah. Good times. Good <laughs> times. I do want to mention though, the, um, the, you see a lot of promos on the WWE network because it's the Coliseum video release. So there's lots of backstage stuff with like Jim Cornette. And there's even one in here with Roddy Piper and, uh, Piper is in his dressing room and he's showing you what's in his bag. And he's bragging that this Hershey's bar is what real champions eat and shit like that. And he looks like a million dollars. And I know he's fresh off of a movie set. The vignettes that were building to this, you know, were of him in his movie trailer where he's got like a five o'clock shadow and outside of his movie trailer one night. And he is in the best shape Roddy Piper was ever in at 40 years old. Is he not? Yeah. Piper was ripped, man. He was working his ass off and trimming down and just, uh, changing his look up and trying some different shit. You know, he was in that acting world wanting to, you know, it's funny. They tell you, ah, you got to trim down. You got to get smaller and all that stuff. And, And that's what Roddy was doing. And he was working hard to attain that. It just, um, I don't know that it was his best look because he looked skinny. Well, I just mean in terms of he looks more like an athlete here than ever before. I mean, he was in phenomenal shape here. Uh, Not as not as muscular. I'm not saying that. Not as swole as they like to say, but certainly uh, as lean as you've ever seen him. And the storyline here is you guys happen to cross a Roddy Piper impersonator. And when we go back several weeks on raw, there's a King's court and he's going to promise Roddy Piper and Jerry Lawler delivers this impersonator who comes out and kisses Lawler's feet and is doing an incredible impression of Roddy Piper, uh, dressed just like him, but skinny as a rail. I mean, the kid weighs 90 pounds tops. And now for the main event here. That kid's actually going to walk to the ring with Piper as, um, um, amongst the great bagpipe entrance. What can you tell us about the way you found this kid and what it was like working with him? Man, he had sent in some tape. I believe it, he sent in the tape to Piper. And Lawler saw it and said, oh, God, this would be great. Lawler used him for his stuff. And then we thought, you know, the great swerve at the end is Lawler thinks he has this kid in his corner to get under the skin of Roddy Piper because Roddy really wasn't fond of Piper impersonators. So it was uh, just that little swerve, bring the guy in, let him be in Roddy's corner, give him a little bit of a spotlight. He did a good Piper impersonation, and it was a lot of fun, and Roddy embraced it, and we were just trying to add anything that we could to this match. We didn't have we didn't have Roddy to make a lot of the dates leading up to this match, so you couldn't get that physical 
uh, interaction between Piper and Lawler. It was all verbal. And we thought if there were ever any two guys that oh, could this talk into a house, you know, it's Roddy Piper and Jerry Lawler. But nobody <laughs> really gave a shit enough to to want to see it, unfortunately. And, and Roddy was doing, he was sending us these tapes that he was shooting himself with his little camcorder, and they would be 20 minutes long. And you'd have to edit them down to get a promo out of them. So it was, it was a challenging promotion at best. And I had, I had kind of stuck my neck out on the line with Roddy and, and really wanted to do something with him. This was his, you know, door back in at the time after we'd done the WrestleMania thing. And he, I uh, still got, you know, some more matches left in me and so on and so forth. And, um, Roddy Piper, come on. It's, yeah, uh, I mean, it, it's everything one, I could. Meltzer would say mainly Lawler kept chasing the kid and Piper kept stopping him. After below par brawling and little wrestling came the ref bump. Lawler pulled out a foreign object and hit Piper and tried to pin him with his feet on the ropes, but the kid threw Lawler's feet off the ropes. Lawler goes after the kid. Piper gets him from behind with a sloppy bridging back suplex. That was the idea. Although the reality was something different for the pin one star and they get, uh, what? Like 12 and a half minutes for this one. Uh, yeah, not the best main event. What'd you think? Is this, this is the last time we see Piper in the company, I guess for more than a year, he pops back up in 95 and we know he's going to fill in for Razor Ramon at WrestleMania 12 and 96, but he's in and out. Uh, as a result of this match is, does Piper want to take a break? Is this all you had him contracted for? Does Vince say, boy, that's enough of that shit for a little while. Why is this the end of Piper for a little bit? I think everybody wanted to take a break. (laughs) Um, I know Lawler didn't want any more of it. You know, when you, you look back at it and you watch it and you're in there, if you have any feeling at all, you realize this sucks. Uh, this is not working. They did not have chemistry in the ring. Unfortunately, you know, I don't even know they really had good chemistry on the microphone because Lawler, Lawler needs that pause. Lawler needs, needs that moment for that comeback. And Roddy doesn't always give that to you. And, and Roddy's comebacks are, are too quick sometimes. And, and then he leaves you nowhere to go. Lawler will feed you, give you some place to go. He'll, but he, he needs, a, he needs a second. I just think their timing on everything didn't work. And it, it was, it was a failed experiment. It, it didn't didn't get over, and when it was over, we were thankful it was over. Vince laughed his ass off, and I don't think that he thought it was one of the best shows we ever had. Um, thank Pat and I for running it and doing everything we could, and 
you you know after the show you can then go back during the show is not the time to express your frustrations or to say okay I had this to deal with or I had that to do it, it doesn't matter it doesn't matter what the fuck you had to deal with it deal with it it's your job so I wasn't gonna sit there and say well Vince sorry I've been in a room with Hot Rod for a fucking hour and I I didn't get to do that no sir all I got to say is nope. Didn't get to do that fucked up. Sorry. Um, but I got to go do something else right now. And you go on and you do it. After the fact, I got to share some of that with him, which made him laugh even more. But um, it's a learning experience. And, and if you learn from your mistakes, <laughs> hopefully you're not going to repeat a lot of them. Sometimes you do just because you think, well, I'll overcompensate here. It just was, it was tough. And it was without having Vince, who was and is always kind of that rudder in the water. You, you think you can do it. And, and I do believe we can do it. And we have done it without him and been fine. This was the first time for me and Pat doing it without him. And maybe we were a little overconfident. Maybe we took a lot for granted. But for me, probably one of the worst pay-per-views I've ever been involved <laughs> with. Oh. Um, I love it you. was painful, man. It was it was really painful. Well, and, uh, I know this was painful for you today. I guess we should tell everybody you, uh, flew home for the emergency oral surgery, uh, and your nightmare continued as it was one huh. complication after another, you had that surgery first thing cracking on Wednesday morning, more complications Thursday. It got way worse on Friday, Saturday, a whole new set of problems. And then of course, Monday, another set you, you didn't get to make the pay-per-view or tv for wwe but you sucked it up and you made it for something to wrestle fan base and we appreciate you taking the time to uh, do it and hopefully you can take another pain pill take a nap and, and we're going to try to bring you guys some more great content this friday at noon uh tell your friends something to wrestle is back with some brand new content and thanks to tony Schiavone hey. for filling in the gaps last week um, yeah, I want to thank Tony, man, for stepping in and helping out on that. And I want to thank everybody for the well wishes. Um, I I have no idea at all what transpired in my life uh, last Wednesday and Thursday. <laughs> I have zero recollection. However, I will give you this one piece of advice. If you ever go into the dentist and you leave your wife out in the waiting room, and they get in and they pull six of your fucking teeth. Don't ever let her make that last decision about doing the last thing to drill up into your jaw and <coughs> take out all the rest of that shit. No, she made a good decision, I'm sure, in the long run. But um, holy fuck. Uh, I, I asked the guy before I went in, uh, the week before when I scheduled the surgery, everything had dropped on me and I was in a bad way. And I said, how long am I going to be down? He says, Oh, one day you're in, you're out. You'll be at work the next day. 
I guess we should mention a lot of this is complication from when Brock Lesnar destroyed your fucking face backstage and, and Humpty Dumpty puts you back together again. And so yeah. when you, you talk about having to have teeth pulled, people just think, oh, this raggedy motherfucker don't brush his teeth. No, your palate collapsed. Your yeah. entire face, the inside of your mouth fell and it's now on your tongue and you're holding it up like an asshole trying to make TV. And then eventually they say, get the fuck out of here and go get that fixed. And so here we are. And I know last week, you know, you know, people are going to say what people are going to say. Oh, they don't care about the show anymore. Oh, so he doesn't have a fucking mouth. <laughs> this is not <laughs> something we can do. So thanks for Tony for running his mouth and. Yeah. Uh, although the live shows with Bruce obviously have to take a hiatus because of his WWE travel, somehow Jim Ross has found a way to schedule a live show with me. Actually, two. We've got them coming up, and I want to go ahead and let everybody know about those. Jacksonville, Florida, on July twelfth will be our very first Grill and Jr. Live, and you can join us at GrillandJRLive.com. And that is the night before AEW's Fight for the Fallen. So if you're going to be in town for that show, you might as well go ahead and check out Jim and I the night before right there in Jacksonville tickets are just 39 bucks and it's grillingjrlive.com. Now, maybe you're more of a WWE fan. Well, good news for you, Philadelphia. We're coming to see you on July 14th, right before WWE puts on their pay-per-view extreme rules. We're going to be at Dave and Buster's tickets are only 39 bucks. Philly come see us at jimandconrad.com. That's jimandconrad.com. It's the day of the pay-per-view. We're going to get started at three. We'll be done by five. Plenty of time for you to make it over to see the dark matches and everything that's happening at Extreme Rules. So check us out. July 12th, grillingjrlive.com in Jacksonville, Florida. July 14th, Philadelphia, PA, jimandconrad.com right before Extreme Rules. So whether you're an AEW fan, you're a WWE fan, you're certainly a Jim Ross fan and you got to go see him grilling or Jim. And, well, you don't have a fucking live show to promote, but if you want to, Hey guys, watch raw and SmackDown. Bruce helps work on those. Now he'll be at extreme rules. Uh, I'll attempt to get together with him and he'll say, Oh, I'm too busy. I'm just too busy. And that's, uh, is that it? Anything else we need? To Lots of stuff, lots of stuff coming down the pike. We're going to have some fun and I'm just happy. I'm happy to talk to you again, Conrad. It feels like about fucking 18 years since we've got to just sit down and bullshit and talk. And this was nice because all we got to do is sit down and bullshit and talk. And I like that. Bullshitting and talking is, is what our friendship is based upon and our friendship and relationship with the audience. So thank you guys for bullshitting and, uh, and talking with us this week. And I know we dropped this on you, you know, with really no advance warning, sort of out of the blue, but this is what we promised last Friday. We couldn't deliver it. So we delivered it to you today and we did it ad free with the exception of me plugging Jim Ross at the end. Uh, so stay tuned. Oh, we got to go back in and drop in some ads. <laughs> we don't Bruce. We're done. That's it. That's the end of the show. And, uh, we appreciate you guys support here. Follow us on social media. I am at, Hey, Hey, it's Conrad. He is at Bruce Pritchard. Our show is at Pritchard show. And uh, Bruce, it's the end of the show. You know what to do. Shakaka. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs>
Those Weekend Golf Guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.